0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post. And this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 4th. In today's news, Republicans are clinging to their Senate majority. Several House Democrats unexpectedly go down from Miami to Minnesota. An exit polling shows COVID trailed the economy as the number one concern for voters. But first, the big idea. President Trump prematurely declared at 2.30 a.m. that he won re-election, even though Democratic nominee Joe Biden has several clear paths to victory and key states continue to tally votes. Democratic hopes for a resounding coast-to-coast repudiation of Trump did not materialize. Instead, the president was buoyed by victories in Florida, Ohio, and Texas, while keeping his margins with Biden tight in Georgia and North Carolina, both of which remain too close for us to call as of 7.30 a.m. Eastern. Still, Biden showed strength, with an early lead in Nevada and Arizona, a traditionally Republican state where Trump was vulnerable. Biden's clearest path to clinching a majority in the Electoral College remains in sight, a trio of Rust Belt states that both campaigns have prioritized— Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin— These three states were slow to report returns overnight, especially from cities and suburban areas populated with Democrats. Both campaigns are prepared for legal challenges over ballots, meaning the results may not be clear for days or even weeks. Addressing a mostly maskless crowd inside the White House, Trump challenged the integrity of the vote to an unprecedented and, frankly, breathtaking degree. The president said the vote counting in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and other key battleground states amounted to a major fraud on our nation. He had no evidence for this, and he vowed to file lawsuits to stop it. The president claimed he'll go to the U.S. Supreme Court to demand that they stop counting ballots in Pennsylvania immediately. There does not appear to be any legitimate legal basis for this. Each state has its own election laws, and challenges to their procedures and practices would be filed in lower-level courts. A little before 1 a.m., Biden addressed his supporters at an outdoor drive-in rally in his hometown of Wilmington, Delaware, where he urged Democrats to keep the faith and projected confidence that he ultimately will prevail. He said, we believe we're on track to win this election. But he called for patience and added, quote, it ain't over till every vote is counted. As the electoral prize of Florida appeared to slip out of reach, Biden and his aides settled in for a long slog with staffers pointing to silver linings and bracing for an extended wait. Phil Rucker, Tolu Olrunipia, and Annie Linsky report that Biden lost Florida because he choked badly in the vote-rich Miami area. While Biden built up a large lead in early and absentee voting in Florida throughout October, Republicans gained ground as Election Day neared. Trump, according to the exits, won two-thirds of voters on Election Day. With 11 million votes counted in Florida, Trump won 51.3 percent to Biden's 47.8 percent. Trump showed major strength with Latinos in South Florida. It's an area that's traditionally leaned Democratic, and it's also home to a large community of Cuban-Americans, traditionally Republicans, as well as immigrants from Venezuela. Trump's message to the Latino community appeared to prove pivotal. He relentlessly tried to brand Biden as a socialist, which, of course, is not true, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won Miami Dade County by a margin of about 30 points. Trump narrowed Biden's lead there this year to less than 10 points. Meanwhile, in Central Florida, where Puerto Rican voters are a large and powerful voting bloc, Biden performed better than Clinton, but it wasn't enough to make up for Trump's surge in Miami. Additionally, strong turnout among the state's smaller, more rural counties also boosted Trump's vote total allowing him to overcome Democratic advantages in the state's large cities, like Tampa. Democrats, though, still remain confident that Biden can pull this election out. If he wins Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, he will be president. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Kentucky Republican, easily won re-election on Tuesday night, and he seems more likely than not this morning to remain majority leader next year. Democrats needed to gain four seats for a majority or three for a 50-50 tie if Biden wins the presidency, which a vice president, Kamala Harris, could break. Democrats took out Cory Gardner in Colorado, but Republicans took out Doug Jones in Alabama, offsetting each other. In Arizona, Democrat Mark Kelly leads Republican Senator Martha McSally, but we haven't called that race yet. In North Carolina, Republican Senator Tom Tillis also leads, but it's also still too close to call. Tullis had been trailing in the polls until his Democratic challenger was caught having an extramarital affair a few weeks back. Maine also remains too close to call, and the state may need to use its ranked choice vote system if neither Susan Collins, the incumbent, or Democratic challenger Sarah Gideon breaks 50%. Republican incumbents, though, defeated well-funded Democratic challengers in Iowa, South Carolina, Texas, and Montana. The Republicans also held an open Kansas Senate seat, despite Democrats spending millions of dollars there. And the special election in Georgia to finish the term of former Senator Johnny Isaacson will head to a January 5th runoff, with Democrats consolidating behind Raphael Warnock, the pastor at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, while appointed Senator Kelly Loeffler beat out Congressman Doug Collins for the second slot. They're both Republicans. Democratic challenger John Ossoff is trailing Georgia Senator David Perdue in the other race, but that is also still too close to call, and it's unclear if it will go to a runoff. Nevertheless, it is possible that control of the Senate could come down to Georgia, in which case I'll spend Christmas in Atlanta. Number two, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats appear on track to secure another two years in the majority. But as votes were being tallied late into the night, the party looked set to fall drastically short of its own bullish predictions. Rather, several Democratic incumbents that the party believed were secure found themselves suddenly out of a job. And Republican districts the Democratic leaders have been eyeing for two years landed solidly in Republican control. Rachel Bay, Juliet Eilperin, Steve Muffson, and Amber Phillips report that the House results signal a strategic blunder by House Democrats, who focused so intently on trying to expand their majority that they didn't sufficiently defend their own territory. Two first-term Democrats unexpectedly went down in South Florida. Congresswoman Donna Shalala, who was Bill Clinton's Health and Human Services Secretary, lost to a Cuban-American journalist who she beat by six points two years ago. Debbie Mukerzel Powell, who was born in Ecuador and was the first South American immigrant to serve in Congress, lost to Miami-Dade Mayor Carlos Jimenez, despite massively outspending him. Republicans locked down several seats that National Democrats had it targeted with millions in spending. In what had been a top target for Democrats, the suburban Indianapolis seat of retiring Congresswoman Susan Brooks, a Republican, fell out of their reach. In suburban Cincinnati, they failed to unseat Congressman Steve Shabbat, another top Democratic target. Congressman Max Rose, the blunt talking ex veteran and New Yorker who won in a district Trump carried by double digits, also went down. In Oklahoma, Democratic freshman Congresswoman Kendra Horn conceded her race overnight. So did one of the two Iowa Democrats who had picked up a seat in 2018, Abby Finkenauer. Who won her seat in Northeast Iowa in 2018 fell to a state representative. In the costliest House race in South Carolina history, Democratic Congressman Joe Cunningham in the Charleston area was defeated by Republican Nancy Mace. In New Mexico, Democratic freshman Zochi Torres Small went down. One of the biggest surprises of the night on the House side was that even Colin Peterson in Minnesota. Someone who's represented the state's rural western half that borders North Dakota for three decades, who's withstood a series of Republican waves, lost to a former lieutenant governor. He won easily in 2016, despite Trump carrying that district by 30 points. Now he's out of a job. And Republicans did much better than they expected in vulnerable suburban areas. In Missouri, Ann Wagner, the leader of the GOP's suburban caucus, held on in a race that had been labeled a toss-up. So did French Hill in Little Rock and Rodney Davis in the Chicago suburbs. To be sure, Democrats had some wins. The party early on picked up two seats in North Carolina, taking advantage of redrawn congressional maps. Perhaps nowhere will Democratic disappointment be more pronounced than Texas, a state that has increasingly become competitive and which Democrats thought would be a prime example of the political realignment happening in the nation. Instead, five Republican incumbents in competitive districts, all of whom had been targeted by Democrats, one, including Dan Crenshaw, Van Taylor, Roger Williams, John Carter, and even Michael McCall, who was considered the most beatable of the five by the Dems. Democrats also lost a Texas seat that they had considered an easy pickup, Texas's 23rd district, which is a border district where moderate Congressman Will Hurd retired. It was a bad night for the Democrats in the House. Number three, according to national exit polling, Two in 10 American voters said that the pandemic, which has left more than 233,000 Americans dead and appended life around the globe, was the most important issue on their minds when they selected who to vote for for president. About the exact same number cited racial inequality, but one third of voters said they were primarily voted in making up their mind by the economy, and six in 10 of them voted for Donald Trump. A slight majority of voters said it's more important to contain the coronavirus now, even if the necessary measures hurt the economy, while about four in 10 said the economy is more important, even if restoring the nation's economic health, hamstrings efforts to slow the spread of the contagion. Yesterday, about 90,000 new infections were reported, bringing the U.S. to more than 9.3 million cases. The virus continues to surge through the Midwest and the Great Plains, Seven states set new records for hospitalizations of COVID patients, including Iowa, Ohio, and Wisconsin. A new study out this morning from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association shows an alarming surge of new infections among children. There were 61,447 new cases of COVID among kids in the week ending October 29th, the largest spike of any week since the pandemic began. Hospitals in St. Louis and Omaha have started rescheduling elective surgeries to free up beds. The head of the Arkansas Hospital Association said yesterday that that state faces a critical shortage of health care workers because other states are luring their nurses away by offering to pay them more money. Finally, in North Dakota, Republican David Ondahl won his race last night for the state legislature. Sadly, he won't be able to take that seat because he died last month from COVID 19. He was 55. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, November 4th. Thank you for listening. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you tomorrow.